0: You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Now the miracle of Jesus feeding the multitudes uh, with five loaves of bread and two fish, or if you read the King James Version, two fishes, uh, is a beloved one right? If you've been around the church much at all throughout your life, you are familiar at least a little bit, you're familiar with this miracle. Uh, but, but I think for me, uh, in the past at least, I think much of what this miracle is actually about goes unnoticed. I know that so this is just me being honest with you. I learn new stuff every week as I, as I study and prepare uh, sermons to preach to you guys. For me, prior to this week, Whenever I read uh, about this miracle, I always thought of two things primarily that it taught. The first is the obvious one, that Jesus is God, right? This is a miracle of creation, and we'll get into more of that later. Uh, And the second thing that this miracle always made me think of, and and I believe that it taught, was that Jesus cares for both the body and the soul, right? He teaches the people, and then he feeds their bodies, right? And that's a good example for our ministries as well, right? Word and deed. Feed people spiritually and feed people physically. Uh, and those two things, they're, they're good and they're true and they can certainly be deduced from this passage and I'm not knocking on those things at all. But I think that there's a lot, lot more in this miracle that we don't tend to see. In fact, aside from the resurrection of Christ, this may be the most important miracle that he ever did or at least one of them, right? I'm not trying to over-exaggerate just to get your interest Uh, I I say that this may be Jesus' most important miracle. Uh, I say that because God saw fit to have it included in all four gospel accounts. Beyond that, it is the only miracle, aside from the resurrection, that is recorded by all four gospel writers. That's pretty significant, right? So that should be a red flag for us to recognize that this miracle must be very important for our understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do, right? Because every miracle points us to spiritual truths. So again, the, the the fact that this miracle is recorded in all four Gospels should make us read it looking for much more than what appears on the surface at first glance. This passage is about a whole lot more than just feeding hungry people or even miraculously multiplying bread. I believe that it gives us a picture of who Jesus is and what he came into the world to do. Now, now before we begin, I, I want to shoot straight with you guys. I try to always be honest. Um, this sermon was an incredibly hard-fought sermon for me. Um, I, I studied pretty hard. I used upwards of 25 resources <laughs> thinking through this. Uh, but the meaning of the text still seemed really elusive to me. Until Friday, whenever I sat down to write it. Right? Uh, I saw a bunch of truths in the text all week and in the parallel passages in the other Gospels, but I had a really hard time piecing them together and seeing how they all work together to make one big picture. Right? And I say that for a couple of reasons. One, uh, I want to encourage you, as the 1689 Confession says, not all scripture is a like plane. Right? Not all of it's as easy as others, right? Some passages of Scripture are harder to understand than other passages, and you shouldn't feel stupid whenever that happens, because it happens to everyone who's a serious student of Scripture. So that's one. I want to encourage you in that. Keep reading. Keep studying. Uh, But second, I want you to know, uh, because I had such a hard time with this text, this sermon does not have much of an outline, right? It It just doesn't. It didn't really fall open to me like other passages do. Um, not only that, but, but I'm not yet able to go as deep into explaining this text as I would like to. I just can't. I'm a disciple just like you guys. Right? I'm still learning. Um, so what I'm going to do this evening is just walk through the passage, retelling it, and pointing out a couple of things as we go. And then at the end, I'm going to do my best to try to tie things together for you so that we might all see some of the big things found in this miracle and what they point to. So, and here's what I'm hoping that you'll see by the end three things. One, that Jesus is the true shepherd or the true leader that God promised in the prophets. The second is that Jesus, as that shepherd leader, is the greater Moses, greater than any other leader that God has ever given, who brings a better exodus, a better covenant, and better salvation. And third, I hope that we can see that Jesus himself is the true bread, the bread from heaven who gives eternal life to those who eat of him by faith. So I know that that's a lot, and you're probably wondering, what do those three things have to do with each other, and how are we going to get there from this text? Uh, But I'm convinced that when we look at this miracle, taking into consideration what Mark and the other three Gospels tell us about it, that you're going to see those things, um, and seeing them, that you and I will both be blessed by them as we behold Jesus in his glory as our Savior. So now, if you would, as a sign of respect for our God, if you are able, please stand with me for the reading of his inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Our great God and Father, we humble ourselves before your word this evening and ask that you would teach us from it. Please, Lord, open our eyes to see our hearts, uh, to, to receive everything in faith. God, help us to understand so that we might believe. Show us our Lord Jesus. That's, that's what we desire the most. Show us Christ, your only begotten Son, so that seeing him we might be blessed glorify yourself this evening in the preaching and hearing of your holy word. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You guys can be seated. So our text begins in verse 30 with the apostles returning from the mission that Jesus sent them on in verses 7 through 13. You'll remember that from a couple of weeks ago. So according to some commentators, the apostles have been gone for a couple of months, right? They've been out on mission for Christ, preaching, Uh, and and healing and performing miracles in his name. But now they're back, right? And they're telling Jesus about everything that they did and taught. They're telling him how they healed people and cast out demons in his name, how they preached repentance in the kingdom of God, and how people can be saved by faith, right? So they they give their reports to Jesus, and I'm sure that they're glad to be back home and get some rest finally again. A couple of months' worth of, of hard mission would make you tired. And Jesus decides to give them some time off after the mission, right? Verse 31 says, And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for they were coming and going, or many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat, right? So they get back, probably expecting some immediate rest, right, as you probably would, but that's not the case. As soon as they get back and they report to Jesus what's happened, people start flocking to Jesus and the apostles, right? Right? Uh, some may be wanting to be taught more. Uh, but most likely, the people wanted to see miracles uh, and or be healed of their diseases and their afflictions. In the 12, along with Jesus, the text says they were so busy with these crowds that Jesus recognizes that they're going to have to go away if they're going to get away from these people so that they can get some rest. Right? Again, the text says that they are so busy that they can't even eat a meal. So Jesus suggests that they all go away. And when he says that, go away by yourselves, he's including himself in there. And he says, go away to a desolate place. Now remember that because we're going to come back to it uh, toward the end of the sermon. A desolate place or a desert place is how the King James Version puts it. Uh, Not a desert, but a deserted place. Uh, Wilderness would probably be a really good translation here. Uh, Go away to a wilderness place, away from the towns and away from the villages and all the people. Jesus knows that his people need time alone with him to be refreshed by him and catch their breath as they commune with him in private. And there's a sermon in itself that Christ gives rest to his people and knows that we need to recuperate by being with him alone. But he says, let's go away. So we read in verses 32 and 33 that they go. At Jesus's command, the disciples intentionally go to a deserted wilderness area where there should be no people and this is so that they can get a break from ministry. But as they get away and go into the boat, people recognize them, is what the text tells us. Recognize both the twelve and Jesus, and they begin to follow them. And by the time they get to the desolate area, a huge crowd is already beginning to form. In verse 44, Mark mentions 5,000 people, but he says that they're just men, right, the, the original language word there is literally just males, right? Um, Matthew's account, and I believe it's Matthew 14, says that there were 5,000 men besides women and children. So there are many more than just 5,000 people here in this crowd. Some scholars suggest that there would have been between 10,000 and 15,000 people there counting women and children. I even heard a couple of people say that they would argue that there was actually 20,000 plus people gathering there and if you've ever been to a sold out show in like nationwide arena that's like 15 or 20,000 people so you kind of get if you've never been to a sold out show your life is horrible Um, I'm I'm kidding guys I'm trying to be funny Um, but no so you can get a a picture right it's like an arena concert that many people are here right and this is kind of funny isn't it like I I laughed whenever I was considering this Um, I imagine that the disciples were annoyed right wouldn't you be annoyed Imagine yourself that you have been so busy with helping people and and, and teaching them, right? For two months, then you come home and you're even more busy when you get home. So much so that you don't even have time to eat. So then you hop into your car and you intentionally drive to the middle of nowhere, probably South Webster, right? And you're trying to get some rest. You go to the middle of nowhere, and then as you get out of your car, you look a mile down the road or whatever, right? Because you're going out to a wilderness area and a mile down the street you see a, a, a crowd starting to form. And they're waiting for you to get there, right? And, and as the crowd grows, it becomes between 10 and 15,000 people waiting for you when you came here to get a break. It's funny, right? Like most of us, if not all of us, would get really irritated and frustrated at this point. I know that I would, right? You're starting to think, give me a break. Right? Can I get like a day to myself? I need some time off. This is ridiculous. Please go away and I'll deal with you in a couple of days. And that's because our compassion tends to run out. Right? We're sinners and we don't love people perfectly. But that's not so with Jesus. Verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus goes ashore and sees this mega crowd and has compassion on them. Now, the word compassion in our text is significant. Right? It's used only a few times in the New Testament. I'm not going to try to pronounce it to you in Greek. It's, it's kind of a very strange word. Uh, and every time that it's used in the New Testament, it's a, it's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a word that means bowels or intestines, the gut. This text is telling us that Jesus felt it in his gut as he looked upon the crowds. This is a visceral reaction to something. It's as if compassion overtook him. He felt it, right? He looks out at this crowd, he sees their need, and it's as if in his human nature, it hurt him. It hurt him to see these people. I think the best way that I could think of to describe this is that Oh, kind of internal sound that you make whenever you see something very sad. Like whenever you see a very sick child attached to many machines, lying limply in her mother's arms, and your heart goes out to that child, right? And you are moved with compassion and a desire to be of use and help the child, right? You want to help however you can. That's what's being conveyed to us in that word. That's what Jesus felt when he looked at the crowds. He felt compassion in his gut that was overwhelming. And he was moved to action. And I want to stop here briefly, make a note of this. I want you to see here, as we've seen elsewhere in Mark's gospel, it's like Mark wants us to see this time and again. Jesus is the compassionate savior. We see this time and time again as we read the gospels, don't we? We see here that Jesus isn't annoyed with sinners. He's not annoyed with sinners as we tend to be. Rather, He desires to save them. He wants to do good for them. He's not annoyed at any who would come to Him. His heart breaks, so to speak, for them. That they would come to Him and be healed of their sin. And if you've ever read the parallel account of this in John chapter 6, you'll know that this is a crowd who the next day was going to reject Him. It's a crowd full of unbelievers. But Jesus still has compassion on them. Knowing that they will reject Him tomorrow, He is still moved with compassion toward them today. So know this. Jesus desires to save sinners if they will come to Him. Please know that this evening. He will not cast away even one sinner who comes to Him in faith and repentance. He will take them in and forgive them of their sins and make them new. Please take refuge in this. Regardless of what they've done, regardless if they've come to Him multiple times in the past and abandoned Him, He says, if you will come to Me yet again, I will forgive you and take you in and make you Mine. Take refuge in this. If you're here this evening and you're an unbeliever, know this for a certainty. Jesus is more than willing to be compassionate to you if you will just come to Him in faith trusting Him to save you from your sins. In this text, we see thus far that you do not have to twist His holy arm to make Him show you compassion. You only have to come because He's always willing to be merciful. This is our Savior. And Christian, for the converted person, you should know this as well. Jesus is compassionate towards you. Again, I like to always use this logic a bit. If He showed you compassion while you were still an unbeliever, as he does this crowd, then surely he will be kind to you now that you have been adopted into his family. Will he not? He's not just compassionate toward the unconverted. He is compassionate toward his own. So again, this is very broad and general, but I want you to be encouraged, Christian. I know many of you are suffering many different things right now. I want you to know that our Lord, the compassionate one, actually does care about you. Whatever you're enduring in life, your Savior loves you. And he cares for you dearly. He certainly cares about you. He is the compassionate one. But back to our text. Why? Why does Jesus have compassion on this crowd on that day? Verse 34 says, It's because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now this image of sheep without a shepherd is a biblical picture used many times in the Old Testament. And when it's used, it is always describing the people of Israel not having a godly leader. It's always used to picture Israel lacking someone to lead them to God and to lead them to walk in God's ways and to know God truly. right? Some examples of this. In numbers chapter 27, verses 16 and 17, you can read where Moses pleaded with God. let me back that up. Moses finds out I'm not going or that he's not going to go into the promised land with the people of Israel. So Moses in numbers 27 begins to plead with God to give Israel a leader to replace him so that they would not be like sheep without a shepherd. So God gives them Joshua. In Zechariah chapter 10 verse 2 and in 1 Kings chapter 22 verse 17 you can read where Israel is described as wandering sheep who have been scattered and have no shepherd to lead them. Another example, you can read Ezekiel chapter 34. and In the first few verses, Israel is described as sheep with no shepherd because they lack shepherds in Israel. And again, in every instance, when that word picture is is made, it's a reference to the people of God having no good or godly leader among them. They have no one to guide them. They have no shepherd in Israel. And this was certainly true in the first century when Jesus looked out at the crowds, wasn't it? We saw last week that the king of the region of Galilee, we saw what he was like, didn't we? Someone who was supposed to be a leader in Israel, Herod Antipas, an incestuous adulterer who murders the prophets. I wouldn't exactly call that godly direction, would you? We know that the priests in Israel were also corrupt for the most part. It was actually the high priest who ends up playing a major role in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. There's no godly instruction there. And the religious lay leaders of the day, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were probably the most corrupt. The Sadducees didn't even really believe in the Bible. And beyond that, they wanted to bow down to Rome and compromise on everything for the sake of lining their pockets. We see that the Pharisees burdened the people with their extra-biblical traditions and ended up nullifying the word of God. As Jesus says, and we're going to get into it in a couple of weeks, they had God's name on their lips, but their hearts did not love him. Their hearts were far from him. There were no good leaders in Israel at this time. Not one. Nobody there to shepherd the people in righteousness and point them to Yahweh, no one to point them to God. There was nobody to teach them about God or how to be saved from his wrath or how to please him or how to be faithful to him. The people who Jesus looked out on that day were certainly like sheep without a shepherd. They were lost. You could say lost sheep in Israel. In describing the people of Israel as sheep without a shepherd, Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way, which, by the way, is who Dietrich's named after, if you guys didn't know that, that little three-year-old devil. Um, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I love Dietrich. right? He just kind of is the devil. Um, <laughs> <but> <laughs> Katie, do me? We don't, we don't do that around here, but that gets one. Uh, but no, Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way, referring to them as sheep without a shepherd. He says, there were questions, but no answers. There was distress, but no relief. Anguish of conscience, but no deliverance. Tears, but no consolation. Sin, but no forgiveness. That's pretty accurate. These people that Jesus looked out on that day did not know God. They knew about him maybe, but they did not know him. And what they knew about him certainly wasn't accurate because it had been so so messed up from what the religious leaders of the day were telling them. They were ignorant of the truth. They were exposed to sin. They had no spiritual insight into anything that eternally matters. And because of this, they were exposed to spiritual destruction. They were heading for hell and Jesus knew it. So Jesus pitied them. And in his compassion, he did the best thing he could have done for them. What did he do? Verse 34 tells us he taught them many things. He taught them. Now Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus taught them. He only tells us that Jesus taught them, and that's pretty common for Mark, right? So I'm not going to dive deep into speculation here, but we do know that Jesus preached often about sin and and as the Puritans would call it, the sinfulness of sin, how evil that sin is. Jesus would have also taught them about the wrath of God that is to come upon the one who will not repent and believe his message. He would have also told them of the forgiveness of sins that is available to them. An entrance into the kingdom of God that was he was establishing. He, he would have been preaching the gospel to them, telling them of their desperate need for the forgiveness of sins and how it is to be found by faith in God's chosen Messiah. He would have preached that forgiveness is for whoever will look to him in faith. He pitied them, so he taught them these things, right? And often this is the best thing that we can do for sinners, isn't it? Preach to them. Share the truth of God with them. Call them to repentance, pointing them to the Savior Jesus. That's often the best thing we can do for people. So that's what Jesus does here. He has compassion, so he decides to lead them to the truth by teaching them. And in doing this, Jesus tells us something about who he is. He is the promised shepherd. You see, they had no leader. We've established that. So Jesus begins to teach them. He began to instruct. You could say, without it being a stretch, that he began to lead them into truth. And in doing this, Jesus shows us that he is the fulfillment of what God had promised through the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 34... In the early verses, God indicts the leaders of Israel and says that Israel has no shepherd. But then in verses 15 and 16 of Ezekiel 34, God goes on to say this. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So God promises that he himself is going to shepherd his people at some point in the future. That he is going to come down and seek the lost sheep and feed them and bind them up and find the stray and save them. And then he goes on to tell us later in Ezekiel 34 how he's going to do that. In verses 23 and 24, God says, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, Yahweh, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am Yahweh. I have spoken. So here God promises that his servant David, which is a reference to the Messiah. King David has been dead for a long time at this point. He's referring to the descendant of David, the branch of David, the Messiah. He says that Messiah is going to be the shepherd of his people. And more than that, he's going to be a prince over them. He's going to rule them. He's going to be a king over them. So, God promised long ago through Ezekiel that He would send the Messiah to gather His people and tend to them and care for them and teach them and govern them. And now, as we see Jesus having compassion and beginning to lead these shepherdless sheep, we see that God's promise has now come to pass in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the shepherd. As we read in John 10, He is the good shepherd. Who will lead God's people to God? Who will fend off the wolves with his pure teaching? Who will instruct them in righteousness and be a good and godly king over them? Jesus is the shepherd that we need, the compassionate one who has come to seek and save the lost and lead them back to God. All the other shepherds in Israel's history have failed, and most of them have proved to be mere hirelings. They had only taken their positions to see how much money or power or authority that they could get. But Jesus is the good shepherd who shepherds at great personal cost to himself, even his own life. But he's the one promised by God. And now we see in Mark, he is the one who has been delivered to God's people. So again, he is the true shepherd of the people of God. And if we know anything about shepherds, what do we know? They feed the sheep. So Jesus has fed the sheep spiritually by teaching them many things, and now he's going to feed them physically by miraculous provision. Let's read again in verse 35 and 36. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So apparently Jesus had been teaching the crowd for so long that the day was nearly spent. It's probably between 5 and 6 p.m., and Jesus had taught them without a break, apparently, so they had missed meals. So the disciples go to Jesus and say, man, we are in the wilderness, and it's getting late. Send these people away, right? We don't have enough food to feed them, and I'm sure they're hungry, so send them somewhere else. They should go. They're hungry. Now, some people think that the disciples were being rude here. I don't think so. I want to give them some credit, right? We don't give them enough credit sometimes, I think. Um, I don't think they were being mean or rude to the crowd. I think they were just being economic and practical. right? I'm just, I'm just being honest. That's what I think was going on here. The crowd is 10 to 15,000 people. They don't have enough food to cover that. And they certainly don't have enough money to cover that either. So it just makes sense that you would send them away. I and mean, what would you do? right? You'd do the same thing. You'd send them away to go get some food for the night. But Jesus doesn't like that idea. So he challenges his disciples in verse 37. He says, you give them something to eat. And this is actually fun. Like, I'm, I'm not kidding. Whenever, like, I retell that, like, to myself, you give them something to eat, right? And in the original language, the emphatic is on you. <laughs> like, you do it. <laughs> Jesus, send them away. No, you feed them. Jesus knows they can't feed this crowd. Again, they don't have the resources to do so. Mark's highlighting that. He, he's he's, he's, he's breaking, bringing that to our attention, He knows they don't have the resources to do it, but I think what Jesus is doing here is he's testing their faith. He's testing their faith to see whether or not they'll recognize who he really is and ask him to do the impossible for them. He's testing them. Like, you'll remember, they've seen him do a ton of miracles already, haven't they? Even raising someone from the dead. I think Jesus is trying to get a response of faith out of them. Where they would say, well, Jesus, we can't feed them, but we've seen all the other stuff that you can do, so we believe that you can somehow do it. You can if you want to, so will you? We can't. But that's not exactly how it goes down, <laughs> right? The disciples are not always star pupils in Jesus' school, so they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? They get a little bit sarcastic with Jesus here. They get a bit sarcastic with him. They ask him if they should go spend seven to eight months' worth of wages and buy the crowd food. Right? And we know that because a denarius is one day's wage uh, for an average laborer. So this is 200 days' wages, seven to eight months' worth of money, a huge amount. I don't even think they have this much money on them. right? Remember, they just came back from a trip where Jesus said, don't take any money with you. And then Jesus sends them out to this desolate place. They're stressing to Jesus that even with a large sum of money that they don't have, they still couldn't feed this crowd, right? It's at the risk of sounding irreverent myself. I imagine they're feeling or they're saying to themselves, Jesus, this is stupid, right? We don't have the money. There's no food around here. Stop playing games, right? Send them away. We don't have enough money for this. But then in verse 38, Jesus tells them to go and see how much food that they have. And John's parallel account in John chapter 6 tells us that they found a young man who had packed his lunch that day, right? Apparently there was one person who had a responsible mother in this entire crowd, right? And the young man had five barley loaves and two fish on him. And a quick word about the loaves and the fish, this is peasant food, right? This is basically five very small biscuits. John MacArthur said, I was listening to him preach on this, he said that he always imagined this kid carrying around like, five things of wonder bread and he was like that's like enough to feed a neighborhood why would you carry that much bread this is like five very small biscuits all right it's not a loaf of bread like you think of Uh, it's actually both the word for loaf uh, loaves and fish um, are in the diminutive form in the original language which means it's meant to highlight that they were small so these are basically like five glorified crackers and two pickled or salted sardines basically I don't know who that sounds good to, but that's what they ate back then. Um, and that's all they've got on them, right? That's it. Mark is highlighting that there is no natural way that this crowd of thousands is going to be fed. So something supernatural is going to have to happen. Jesus is going to have to do something. So let's read 39 through the end. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the 12 baskets, they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Jesus multiplied the loaves and fish and fed over 10,000 people that day. Now, Real quick, it just drives some people crazy. How did it happen? What 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 were the details here? I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. None of the none of the accounts tell us what happened. Just tells us that it happened. So I'm not going to try to figure that out or give you some explanation that's not in the Bible. It just says that Jesus broke the loaves and the fish and just kept giving it out to his disciples to pass out to the people. He just kept breaking and giving and breaking and giving and breaking and giving over and over and over until everyone had eaten their fill and was satisfied it's not that everyone got a cracker and some wine like we do at communion these people ate and were full that's a lot I imagine this process took a good amount of time but not only did every man woman and child eat as much as they desired there were leftovers twelve baskets full one for each apostle That might mean more, right? It might be a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Jesus is reconstituting Israel around himself. The true people of God come to Jesus. Or 12 just might mean 12, right? No one's really sure. We're not entirely sure. The other one sounds cooler, but it may just be 12 for the 12 apostles. But Jesus, the great shepherd, fed the sheep. He fed them spiritually, and then he fed them physically. So this miracle reinforces the shepherd theme that was introduced to us in verse 34. He really is the true shepherd. But I think that there's more for us to see here than just a meal. Most obviously, this miracle attests to the divinity of Jesus Christ. Here you have Jesus directly doing a miracle of creation. He breaks the bread and the fish, and then he just keeps on breaking them. He is creating food as he goes. Right? There's more material going out than was initially given to Jesus. Yes, he's multiplying. Right, A lot of people describe this as a miracle of multiplication. I'm not denying that. But he's also creating what formerly did not exist. There's now more matter in the world than there was prior. Right, And it is directly coming from his hand. It's not indirectly like the miracle uh, of 20 loaves in 2 Kings chapter 4 where the bread just stayed there as people ate from it no this is not indirect it's not just appearing it's coming from the hand of Jesus he's creating this is something only God can do this miracle certainly attests to the truth that Jesus is the one who existed from the beginning and as we confess often with the Father and the Holy Spirit created the world he is the only God And as the only God, he is worthy of our worship and our adoration. He is the one who is to be believed in because there is no other God. But even more than that, I think we see some very deep themes going on in this miracle and in this narrative as a whole that tells us even more about Jesus than than that he is God. It goes deeper than that. Throughout this entire section, verses 30 through 44, there are some really heavy themes that remind us of the exodus. Exodus when I refer to the Exodus, I mean whenever Moses led the Israelites out of slavery to Egypt. And I believe that this is done completely on purpose. God intends us to see these things in this account. So here they are. Right now, I'm I'm tying some of these things together. Mark tells us in verse 39 that the grass was green. You remember that? It's a pretty vivid detail, right, which tells us that this is an eyewitness account. Remember, Peter told Mark the story, and then Mark records everything. So this lets us know, one, this is an eyewitness account. Second, the fact that the grass was green tells us that this is springtime in Israel because whenever the summer comes and the heat comes, it makes all the grass brown. And in the spring, what happens? You're a Jew. Passover. Not only that, but John chapter 6, verse 4 confirms this by saying, the time of the Passover was at hand. So during this whole narrative, the people there would have had Passover on their mind. It was coming up, right? You're like, well, how do you know that they have Passover on your mind? You know whenever, like, November comes and you're like, it's Christmas, right? Like, it's Christmas season. It's coming, and you maybe not, right? It's before Thanksgiving, so it's nonsense, right? But, like, you're, you're thinking that, right? Like, it's Christmas. It's in the back of your head. You may not be consciously thinking about it the whole time, but you're thinking Christmas season is upon us. Imagine that feeling and then magnify it by about a thousand times. That's how Jews feel about Passover. Passover is a big marker of their identity as Jews. The people assembled that day would have at least have in the back of their mind for all of this, they'd be thinking about Moses and the Exodus, how their ancestors were slaves, but how God brought them out using the great leader Moses. They would have been thinking about how Moses led the people into the wilderness and how in the wilderness the people were fed with manna. And how it was in the wilderness that Moses went up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and received the law of God and then spoke to the people on behalf of God. They would have been thinking about how God, through this whole exodus process, made a covenant with them. The old covenant. And then here in our text, what do we see? The place where the crowd assembled was a desolate place. A wilderness place. Mentioned three times. We're supposed to pick up on that. It's a wilderness We see that Jesus in verse 34 is the promised shepherd or leader of the people of God, greater than any other leader who ever came before him. Not only that, but in the parallel account in John chapter 6, verse 3, John tells us that Jesus went up on the mountain to teach them so that they could hear him. So here we've got Jesus, the great leader, speaking from on a mountain to people in a wilderness place. And then he does a miracle to feed them with supernatural bread like manna in the old testament brothers and sisters this whole account is meant to signify to us that one has come who is greater than moses the greater moses has come a greater leader for god's people a perfect leader a sinless leader a leader who is going to lead the people of god in a new exodus a new freedom and a greater exodus than what the Jews experienced. Instead of being led out of physical bondage to a tyrannical Pharaoh, Jesus is going to lead his people in a spiritual exodus out of bondage to sin and its power and penalty and death. A greater leader than Moses has come who is going to mediate a new and better covenant for the people of God. A covenant not filled with curses like the covenant that God made on Sinai that says, obey everything written in the book of the law or die, but a covenant filled with grace for sinners who will look to the covenant head, Jesus, who says to them, look to me and live. I have obeyed the law in your place. I serve a better covenant. Trust in me and be saved. A greater Moses has come and his name is Jesus Christ, the true shepherd. Who leads a better exodus, who mediates a better covenant, who gives a truer fuller, eternal salvation to the people of God but not only that, I think we see something else from this miracle and we have to go to John 6 to see it in John chapter 6, Jesus is having a conversation with the crowd on the following day, and in it Jesus tells us what this miracle concerning the bread was meant to point to in that discourse Jesus calls the Jews who had gathered around him to believe on him but they ignore him and they say that his miracle of bread was not enough proof for them and then they ask him for more bread to satisfy their physical hunger but Jesus then goes on to point them away from the bread and to something greater the people in that discourse mentioned that Moses gave their forefathers bread from heaven manna and Jesus responds with this He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then later in the discourse, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus tells them that his miracle was never just about bread. It was never just about feeding hungry people. It was never even just about saying that, that, that he was a shepherd. But this miracle of bread was meant to point them to himself so that they might, by faith, eat of him. The, the, the bread that God provided when Moses was their leader, Jesus says that did not give eternal life. No physical bread can do that, but the bread that God is now providing will give them eternal life. And Jesus Christ himself is that bread. So Jesus says to them, just as they looked to him earlier to satisfy their physical hunger, they must now look to him for spiritual life. And they must, in a real sense, eat of him by faith. They must take him into themselves like you would take in bread. They must receive him like you receive food. If they would be forgiven of their sins and live forever as God's people, they must eat this true bread from heaven who is Jesus Christ. Jesus has come into the world to feed not the body but to feed the soul with real spiritual food and he himself is the food he is the bread and just as bread gives life to the body Jesus says whoever eats of him will receive life in their souls and be saved and he provides this spiritual bread how he says the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh He does this by dying for sinners, so that they, by faith in him, by receiving him internally as they would bread, might live and be saved. So Jesus doesn't just lead God's people into salvation like Moses did. Jesus himself, the bread of heaven, is salvation. His miracle in our text points to this. Jesus, the bread of heaven, who gives life to his people by giving his life for theirs. So, taking all this together, tying this all together, we see Jesus, the true shepherd leader of God's people, who is a greater leader than Moses, who brings a new exodus from sin and a better covenant that actually saves and a true and eternal salvation, all of which is received by faith, by taking him in and feeding on him by faith. He is the Savior. He is the one that we need. And if we have him, we need no other mediator, leader, or savior, for he is the only one. He's the true shepherd who was promised and who's come into the world to save sinners like us. So for application, what do we do with this passage? Believe it. There's your application. Believe this text. Now we could look at this passage. I read many commentaries that that would point these things out. We can look at this text and see that Jesus desires his disciples to rest from time to time. That he, he commands them to go and rest early on, remember? We could also see in this text that Jesus wants us to trust him to provide for our ministries. Jesus says, you feed them. We could see that he commissions his disciples to take part in his ministry. Remember, Jesus didn't give the bread to anyone. He gave the bread to his disciples, and then they fed the people with what Jesus had given them. We could see those things, and those things are all well and good, and they're true, and I'm not knocking them. But if those things are the major takeaway of this text, then you have missed the point entirely. Those are not the major things you're supposed to see here. Mark writes, so that we might know Jesus so that we might know who he is, so that we might understand why he has come. He wants us to see and behold and savor the glory of the Lord Jesus. So he shows us here that Jesus is the one who brings salvation to his people, that he's the shepherd, he's the leader, he is the bread, so we must believe in him. Mark is revealing, once again, the identity of Jesus. Now he's using veiled symbols and pictures, no doubt, but we can indeed see what he meant for us to see about our Lord. And the call then is for us to believe on him who gives true and eternal life. He who is the compassionate shepherd and savior of God's people. So what do you do with this text? You believe it. You believe it. You believe in the one who is revealed in the text. And you receive the eternal life that he gives to the one who feeds on him by faith let's pray our great God and Father we thank you for this time that we could gather around your word it is marvelous the things that are found in it God I ask that you would seal these truths to our hearts that you would give us eyes to see for the first time if there are unconverted people here or God for those of us who have seen for a long time that we might see Christ afresh as the greater Moses as the true bread of life Open our eyes, God, that we might see and that we might believe so that we might cherish him more. Glorify yourself. We thank you for our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen.